Welcome to the CEC report for the 2nd of February 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is Craig Isherwood, CEC leader. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, how far will Turnbull follow our dangerous allies down the road of war with Russia and China? And showdown at Davos, the economic system isn't working. Social avalanche on the way. So firstly today, how far will Turnbull follow our dangerous allies down the road of war with Russia and China? So there was a big announcement just recently, Craig, and that came on the 19th of January from the US Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, where he unveiled the latest US national defense strategy. And as people probably would have heard in the news, um, the dramatic announcement was that China and Russia are now a greater threat to the United States than terrorism. So this is a big deal and this is, these are the words they actually used in the report. Interstate strategic competition, not terrorism, is now the primary concern in US national security. It is increasingly clear that China and Russia want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model, gaining veto authority over other nations' economic, diplomatic and security decisions. And it went on to elaborate, for example, in regard to China, uh, that China is using predatory economic measures to coerce neighbouring countries to reorder the Indo-Pacific to their advantage. That sounds like the United States is a bit jealous. Like, uh, Yeah, you are taking over our game. That, that's right. I mean, <laughs> isn't this what the US has done since post-war, you know, unfortunately? And, and Britain under Britain's wing, mainly. Exactly. Um, Britain and the US are since the post-World War II period. I mean, since the death of Roosevelt. I mean, what don't, don't you see? I mean, you know, this is not what China and Russia are doing, of course. No. But this is what they're saying China and Russia are doing. What you're seeing here is the emergence of a new order, which is the BRICS grouping of countries, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. But you're also seeing the influence of the entire Belt and Road policy on global uh, you know, excitement and development through, you know, peace mm. through development. You're seeing a new order come through because of the collapse of the Western's financial system, which has not been dealt with since the global financial crisis of 2008. Mm. And the nations, poor nations, many of them, are orientating towards China and China's policy of uh, developing nations through large-scale infrastructure development. And this is freaking the hell out of the West because the, the West is literally mm. bankrupt yeah. monetarily, but also bankrupt in ideas. And the financial system of the last, you know, three or four decades has not assisted developing nations what to uplift they? themselves and develop themselves. They've basically been put into debt and ha hamstrung with conditions from the IMF the whole way or the World Bank or whoever. Well, it's, it's been China's like a, changing that. It's been like a, a form of slavery and this form of slavery is breaking down. Yeah. China's, China's changing that. There's been a natural movement away from slavery towards being a free to be free nations, to be sovereign nations, in fact. And the US is saying, well, now look at this predatory behaviour. And, and they're, they're reflecting or trying to project a mentality that we say, well, that's terrible, that's terrible, that's terrible. And mm -hmm. gullible people believe this to be true. Well, this is, look, look, go back and look mm -hmm. at the Bush-Cheney era. Go back and look at the Obama era and so forth. Look at the predatory policies. Look at the wars that Obama started and Bush and Cheney started and actually take off the scales from your eyes mm. and look at what actually has been going on yep. as opposed to what's actually taking place 
yeah. with China. Look at the development around China. And yeah, fashion. because this move by America is putting the world on a trajectory, a fast trajectory to war. The mm. Cold War environment is extraordinary. The uh, Chinese embassy in Washington DC responded to this new policy by saying, the United States is basically looking through Cold War zero-sum game glasses, in effect, and the Russian finance minister, uh, foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, responded that the Russophobia is worse than even during the Cold War. And take the Olympics as an example. Mm. Um, the Russian Olympic team will not be able to carry their flag as they march into the Olympics in South Korea, which start on the 9th of February. They won't be able to sing their anthem when they win a medal. They won't be able to have any insignia on their shirts. It'll just say Olympic athlete from Russia. Um, they can display the flag in their bedrooms as long as it's not visible from the outside, from outside the room. Uh, it's wild. And yet today in the news, 28 of the athletes that were banned from the Olympics were cleared because there was insufficient evidence. Um, the US is levelling new sanctions against Russia. So there's a dramatic build up here. And I want to talk a bit about how the Australian government is responding to this because we're so used to parroting what the US and Britain say that at first when this US national defence security came out, um, the Australian government leaders were saying, oh yes, well of course we're with that. So you had Defence Minister Maurice Payne who came out saying Australia had similar concerns to the United States and then Barnaby Joyce came out, Deputy PM, uh, concurring that, you know, he had a bit of arming and ahhing, but he said in the end, of course, a major power that can take over a nation has to be a greater threat than a group of terrorists. Um, but fortunately... But the assumption here, Elisa, is that there's an intention for those major powers to take over other nations, and there is just simply no evidence for that whatsoever. No, exactly. But have a look again at the US and have a look again at Britain. Have a look again at the mm. wars that these countries have actually started, in many cases, without any evidence whatsoever, and you see the reflection of the same policy uh, on, or not just a reflection, but the projection of this policy onto countries that don't do this. Mm, exactly. Now, fortunately, for a moment, wiser heads prevailed and Turnbull and um, Julie Bishop did come out because, I mean, it got, has to occur to them at a certain point. We're talking about China, which is our greatest trading partner. Uh, so Turnbull said he had to admit that no country in the region apart from North mm. Korea showed any hostile intent towards Australia because it's simply the fact of the matter. Uh, although he did add that every country has to plan ahead and build up defences to defend yourself. Um, but Foreign Minister Julie Bishop said to Sky News, we have a different perspective on Russia and China. Clearly, we do not see Russia or China as posing a military threat to Australia. So they, you know, they get caught up in the rhetoric of following our Anglo-American allies, but at a certain point, um, they have to start thinking because if you look at what happened with Russia, where the US you know, drove the sanctions to a point where all of Europe had to put sanctions as well and stop trading with Russia and so forth. Would Australia be willing to do that? If the US said, oh, sorry, China's enemy number one, we're putting sanctions on Australia and everyone has to stop trading with them, what's oh, the Australian look, government going to do? Well, the Australian government wouldn't exist. I mean, end of story. I mean, look, governments, governments exist because they are there to represent the people and a substantial amount of our economics, our economy is from Australians dealing with China. Mm. They're just wiped out overnight. Mm. But this, this is where it's leading and we're stoking it in that direction. Everything Turnbull's been doing so far 
Uh, in fact, when Trump got elected, it was like Turnbull decided I'd better take the lead on isolating China. So he's been pushing with the new foreign policy white paper where he solicits America's help to continue us to maintain the rule of order in the Pacific region. Um, he's recruited countries personally. He's led the drive in anti-China blocs, including the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, where Australia, the US, India and Japan uh, have a defence and military arrangement. And also with the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, their foreign, planned foreign interference laws, which are perpetuating a Cold War paranoia about China. Uh, and then, you know, to add to it, we're now saying in this environment that Australia's strategy is now economically to become one of the world's 10 biggest arms supplies over the next decade in the middle of all that. You know, this is all built around the, the British doctrine of the zero-sum game. There has to always be a winner. There always has to be a loser, as opposed to the Chinese idea of the win-win solution. Yeah. If we didn't treat our neighbours as in a potentially hostile right now, OK, there's a few sane heads starting to say a few things, like, oh, no, we don't treat Russia and China. Well, momentarily. Momentarily at the moment. It's words. It could change in a, in a dime. But if you don't... But underneath, the axiom is not one of cooperation, mutual economic cooperation mm. and peace through development. It's a matter of appeasing America. Yeah. Right? And this is why Malcolm Fraser wrote the book he did on and came up with the term dangerous allies. Mm. Because we are... Uh, our underlying... Uh, axiom is that there always has to be a winner, there always has to be a loser and at, at the present time the, the still a prevailing doctrine is that the United States has to be top dog in the Asian region. Mm. But that top dog is built upon a failing economy, the Western financial system is collapsing upon which it is based but China has reached out to the world and is developing other countries, poor countries, places around right around Southeast Asia through a, a process of mutual economic development. Mm. And we should be a part of mm. that. That's right. But we're not. We're yep. just saying, oh, no, 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 no. We've got to stick with our old allies. And we've got to, you know, we have no high-speed rails in this country mm. at all. We're a huge country. We're completely underdeveloped. We should be creating more strategic partnerships with China. I'm not saying give, you know, give, give more land or sell more land or whatever. You just give it over to China, like a lot of people say, you know, is happening. We should develop strategic partnerships so that we develop our country in a sovereign method and make sure that we look towards the future of, uh, in terms of real, de real economic development. Mm. Now, we have to stop for a quick break, but we'll keep talking about this and specifically Turnbull's role in the TPP right after this. Welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing how Turnbull is taking the pathway towards war with China and Russia. And one of the anti-China policies in this region, which he has been promoting and pushing, is of course the TPP. And after it fell apart uh, last year in November, we had meetings on the sidelines of the APEC summit in Vietnam, Turnbull took a lead role in convincing um, the Trudeau government in Canada to pick up on this and to agree with it. And look, Australia is known in the diplomatic circuits and international trade forums as the free trade Taliban. Basically, we are the extremists on full-blown free trade. And of course, now the TPP has been agreed to. It won't be signed until March and it's all still very secretive. Um, we know that 20 provisions that had been in there from when the US uh, was a part of it had been stripped back. 
but it still contains a lot of the most controversial provisions such as the investor state dispute settlement mechanism which allows big corporations to sue governments if governments are impeding their profits with you know regulations and things like that um, so and, and by the way I should add that it's now called the comprehensive and progressive agreement for trans-pacific partnership oh, but I yeah. won't be saying that again <laughs> sounds like it's an excuse to try and sell a a pup to the public, at least. And the problem is that most of our viewers haven't got a clue about economics. And, and economics is not a science, right? Economics is a bunch of arguments to try and convince people, usually by large corporations, to rip them off. And the, this idea of free trade, it's not free trade at all. It's no. a con job. Mm. And it's always been a con job. And what you have to understand is the mentality behind free trade. Because if I told you that free trade is actually developed by pederasts, that is people that support the idea that men should fiddle with little boys, you'd be a bit shocked, wouldn't mm, you? Mm -hmm. Or if I told you it was involved, uh, involved uh, economists that were actually Christian preachers that said instead of looking after people, you should build cities on swamps, right, in order to reduce the population, mm. you'd be shocked, wouldn't you? Mm. Well, actually, that's the reality. Look, British free trade, or the free trade document, the, the doctrine that we are so you know, uh, fanatical about supporting yeah. that we get called the free trade Taliban, comes from the British liberal economics, right, of the British uh, liberal economic, uh, of the British uh, liberal party back in the 18th and the 19th centuries. This is a policy of the British uh, East India Company that was established on slave trading and opium yeah. trading. So here you have people that are prepared to go into other countries and literally enslave people, treat them like animals and bring them to other, out of their homelands into other countries and use them as slaves, or po use poisonous sub sub uh, substances to literally destroy the minds of people. Mm. This is the company that was doing this. But think about the mentality of the people prepared to do that. And then, then you know, as I said, this, this, this Christian pastor, Pastor Thomas Malthus, right? This guy said... Basically, we should take no method. We should use no methods whatsoever to improve the lot of human beings. Like should, hygiene and cleanliness. Yeah, and all of that. We should make sure that we bring back famine and disease to kill off the population. Because mm. he wrote an essay on the principle of population on exactly those methods. Then you have a look at the big guru, Adam Smith, whose uh, who's, uh, theory of moral sentiments. He wrote, you know, back in uh, 1759. He basically said that, you know, you you have to treat people like. Uh, animals, mm. you know, we don't have creative reason. We have to entrust people to the slow and uncertain determinations of our reason. Mm. Like we're, we're pretty dumb, right? We can't really work out our own future. We have to leave that to this mythical god, right? We can't actually figure things out for ourselves. Therefore, you've got to let things happen as if we're animals. But more yeah. than important, he said, you know, we have to be driven by basic instincts: hunger, thirst, and the passion which unites the two sexes. But he's not the worst of them. I've said it before. You know, you've got this guy, Jeremy Bentham, another guru of the British free trade system, the British Liberal Party. You know, this guy was the guy that wrote a paper on the defence of pederasty. He also wrote another pa paper on the defence of usury. Right? He, he basically said that nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pleasure and pain. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to, to determine what we shall do. Now, he, this was what he called the, um, the, uh, the, he wrote a calculus on this, like a mathematical mm. series of formulas on the pleasure and pain principle. Does this sound a bit nutty to you guys? Mm. Well, this is because it is nutty, but this is the mentality 
but it has real consequences because David Ricardo, another one of these economists, had formulated this idea of what's called comparative advantage. And you say, what's that got to do with Australia? Well, we just lost our car manufacturing industry. You know why? Because we are better off to ship out our grain and our farming products and, and get rid of our, you know, dig up our iron ore and stuff because we have a comparative advantage in that area. Mm. We're not supposed to manufacture cars because we don't have a big population. Therefore, we shouldn't manufacture cars. That theory of comparative advantage comes from David Ricardo, who was a disciple of Jeremy Bentham, right? So this doctrine of free trade, which makes us the free trade Taliban, comes from a doctrine governed by very, very sick ideas. Mm. And this is the problem. So when we're talking about the TPP, we're coming back to the same ideas. And when you look at it in detail, you find out it's very, very secretive. Mm -hmm. It's governed by big corporations that have done everything is signed in secrecy that people, governments can't even look at these, um, these documents, right? So you have all sorts of corporations making laws, like, for example, prescription drugs and so forth, and patents and all these sorts of things that are designed not for the interests of the people, mm but for the profits of corporations. So this doctrine, this mentality behind free trade, which goes back to opium trading, goes back to slave trading, is coming through the TPP. Yep. So if the Liberal Party and the Labor Party want to keep supporting free trade, then that's where it's coming from, people. Yeah, exactly. And there are some people actually starting to realise this. You had um, Brian Clark, who's the Director of Trade at the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, re responding to this new TPP. Um, and he said that uh, this and other free trade deals actually provide greater monopoly rights for multinationals to force out their competitors. So, you know, that's the invisible hand, you know, debase the population to just supply and demand and the passions, as you said, and the invisible hand can come along and just take well, everything, loot actually, everything it wants. I don't believe in the invisible <laughs> hand because I feel it in my pocket all the time. That's right. <laughs> now, we've got to stop again, but right after this break, we'll talk about the showdown at Davos. Welcome back to the CC Report. Showdown at Davos. The economic system isn't working. Social avalanche on the way. Now, before we get into this topic, though, just from the last discussion, uh, don't forget you can call in to get a free sample copy of our weekly publication, the Australian Alert Service. There's more information there on the trajectory of war with Russia and China, on the TPP and so forth, all the backup info that you need. And also don't forget that we're in a campaign, a huge campaign, uh, to stop the government giving APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, new powers which could include confiscating your deposits to save the banks in a financial crisis. Go to the top of our website and click on the button that you see there to find out how you can get involved. We need you to contact your Member of Parliament about this urgently. Now on to the subject of Davos. Uh, of course the Davos World Economic Forum was on last week from the 23rd to 26th of January. Uh, and the sort of stage was set by the Davos Global Risks Report 2018, which declared that a global economic recovery is underway, would you believe? Um, now, there were a number of bankers at the forum that uh, disputed that and basically admitted that uh, all the investors and so forth, etc., are too complacent because there's a turn that's going to come and if they're so complacent, it'll make it worse. But the most serious warning came from William White, who's a former Bank for International Settlements economist and the current head of the OECD Review Board. He gave an interview to The Telegraph before the forum where he mapped out the big concern of many people actually, which is that 
the US Federal Reserve's tightening program where they're putting rates up and where they're winding back quantitative easing is the real threat. And he said this, central banks have been pouring more fuel on the fire. Should regulators really be congratulating themselves that the system is now safer? Nobody knows what is going to happen when they unwind QE. The markets had better be very careful because there are a lot of fracture points out there. And he said it is frankly scary. Now, China made a similar intervention along similar lines talking about the Fed's quantitative easing. Uh, Liu He, who's the leading economic advisor to Chinese President Xi Jinping, spoke there. And he said we must focus on the spillovers of the monetary policy, meaning the side effects of the monetary policy of the world's major economies and the changes that have resulted basically in the debt, equity and commodity markets in the short term. And he talked about the fact that China itself is striving to make the financial system more adaptable and better able to serve the real economy, uh, thus preventing systemic risks and facilitating better flow of economic activities. Uh, but what I really want to focus on is the shadow chancellor from the United Kingdom, John McDonald's statements to Davos. He was invited and he went along to deliver a very specific message and he cited the Oxfam report, which just came out which shows the growing inequality in the world where last year 82% of the new wealth that was generated went to the richest 1% of the population. That money could have ended poverty seven times over, but the, the wealth of the lowest 50% of the population didn't increase at all. Now, John said that more billionaires were created in the past year than ever before in history, and I'll let you hear the rest from him. I'm here in Davos today with a warning to the world's elite. They can sit here in a secure compound with its alpine restaurants and expensive chalets, but out there beyond the fence, the economic system they built isn't working. People know it isn't working when they see their public services cut and their wages squeezed, whilst the richest 1% now own half of the world's wealth. So my warning is this, if our rigged economic system isn't radically changed, and its rules rewritten, people will no longer stand for it. The global elite are risking a social avalanche that will sweep them and their broken system away. Labour will transform our society, and we're not alone. It's a mission we share with parties and movements all around the world. We'll launch a global drive against tax dodging and financial secrecy, and for democratic control over our economy, and to protect our planet. We'll implement our own Robin Hood tax and call on others to join us. The Davos few have failed the many, and change is going to come. So that was the challenge that John McDonald laid out to the elite and the bankers all gathered at Davos. So this radical transformation of an economic system, Craig, what does that involve? Well, Elisa, it's not something that's going to be a choice of the bankers in the current system. The fact is the entire system is breaking down. We have to go back to what's called Glass-Steagall, which is a re-regulation of the entire banking system, starting with separating out the necessary banking system, which we talk about a lot, which is you know the, the commercial boring banking system, and separate that out from the highly speculative merchant banking system. People can find a lot more information about that on our website. But John McDonnell goes back and says that, that his Labor Party is committed to nationalising a lot of assets. You know, the healthcare system, the railways, the utilities and so forth. Well, we're heading in that direction down here. It's only a matter of time because the privatisation under the radical free trade that I talked about 
and, or, and the privatisation policies of the 90s is destroying our infrastructure mm. down here and destroying our future. So we'll and talk about that more in other shows. And that system is over, it's finished, it's finished, so we need to put the new system in place. But unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Join us again next week. Thank you.